Welcome to the episode where we talk about the SJW liberal agenda. Conservatives run away now. And welcome to Skylanders Portalcasters, the podcast where we discuss anything and everything Skylanders. I am your host, GF Ditto, and I am joined today by co-host Inklander and special guest star Naga Mikanu. And in today's episode, we are going to be discussing feminism and representation in Skylanders and media. So Inklander and Naga Mikanu, how are you guys doing today? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. How about you? Woo! I'm excited to be back. It's so yes. nice. Yes, yes welcome, welcome back. back to the show. Yeah, yeah, it's our first time we have a guest back on the show, and also in the same season, too. So, you know, we just had you on a couple episodes ago, but very, very excited to have you back, especially for a really good topic as well. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I'm excited to dig in. Yeah, so we figured this would be a good follow-up to our Capitalism Paywalls and Skylanders episode. We wanted to do another mm-hmm. one that was kind of... I guess on a similar vein, a similar kind of discussion about the industry as a whole, but also kind of having Skylanders as a prominent example. So I think that this will be a pretty good episode, hopefully. We'll, we'll find out. Yeah, let's see if we can do it justice. <laughs> yes. Although this is a big topic, because when, when we say representation, that could mean any number of things. We are probably going to be leaning mostly into feminism and gender and the LGBT representation in media. However, uh, we we might bounce around to other things like you know body shaming and there's any number of things that we might talk about. But the, the all most of the likely, things, yeah, like all of the things will probably come up at least to some extent. But the primary focus of this episode, at least, is going to be mostly focusing on the sex and gender side of stuff. So speaking of, I guess. We probably want to start off with the theory before we move into Skylanders and then before we move into media as a whole. So we're going to kind of stick to that same formula we had for the capitalism episode. So Ditto, why don't you start us off with the difference between sex and gender, why that's important, and then we can also move into a definition of feminism as well. So when it comes to the difference between sex and gender, it's literally the difference of sex is what your body is. It's the biological way that you were born. Whereas gender is more cultural, it's more about perception and how people are perceived, typically in regards to sex, but not always attached to. Well said. Right, yeah. So sex and gender are very different things. Uh, They often are still kind of confused and kind of linked. And I do think that's pretty much because in Western culture for so long, we've always tied gender to sex. We've always seen it as male and female gender and male and female sex. So because of that, they've always been very interlinked in Western society. Meanwhile, in other cultures for quite a long time, there's actually been multiple different genders. It's just now finally starting to become realized in Western culture that we actually have not a parallel here that actually both sex and gender are on a spectrum because 
sex as well, a lot of people think of that as just XX and XY chromosomes. They think of it as strictly biologically male and biologically female. But the thing is, is we can also have people that have three X chromosomes or, you know, any different combination, one X chromosome. So even sex itself is on a spectrum. Like there's not just strictly like biologically male or biologically female. There's actually different differences when it comes to the biological sex as well. But when it comes to gender, that is pretty much, as Ditto said, cultural. Like that is a discussion of the behavior, the way that people are expected to dress, the way that people are expected to talk the different kind of tasks that you're expected to do. Like, there are very much different stereotypes that go with gender, and for the longest time in Western culture, that's always been kind of perceived as part of, like, the sex side of things. People have always kind of been like, oh, well, men are the ones that do the heavy lifting. Men are the ones that do the yard work. But the thing is, is, like, that's cultural. Like, there's no reason why women wouldn't be able to do that either, you know? Just, like... It's always been kind of stereotypical of like women clean the house, women do the cooking, but like men can do that too. But they've been so ingrained in our society for so long that we have the separation and women have often been associated with the private sector, with the home. Meanwhile, men have always been kind of associated with the public sector and with the business side of things and the bringing home the bacon side. But we're actually starting to get to that point in Western culture where we're seeing all this stuff break down in society and people are realizing, oh, like these are actually just stereotypes that we're putting on ourselves and actually gender can be any number of things and it's not just the way that we are supposed to dress the way that we're supposed to act like that can be tied to anyone however anyone wants to be it's not actually tied strictly to the biological yeah so sex and gender is pretty important it's a pretty really important distinction there but also another important distinction is exactly feminism and the different waves of feminism so nagamai kano do you want to maybe talk about like the definition of feminism and maybe some of the different waves of feminism that have been present throughout time because there've kind of been three but it's starting to look like there might be a fourth kind of happening so do you want to have like a little overview of that yeah so i've got a dictionary definition of feminism just for the sake of what everything means. Excellent. Feminism is defined as the advocacy of women's rights based on the equality of the sexes. So when feminism came to be, feminism was called feminism by a French man, Le Feminisme. It was originally in the French culture, and it's called this because the French man who coined the term wanted it to be a reference to the people he saw it hurting the most. He saw the discrepancy between how women were treated versus how men were treated. It didn't gain widespread use until the 1970s, but basically Simone de Beauvoir is the original when this started to get in movement, and that was in the 15th century. So we're also talking about Marie Le Jade de Gournay, Anne Bradstreet and Francois Poulain de la Barre in the 17th century. So we've got three waves so far. And the first wave is what is happening during the 19th and early 20th century. This is focused in the United Kingdom and the United States. And this is when we see the suffragette movement. This started with the women's right to vote as it became a political campaign rather than just something people wrote about and talked about beforehand. 
So that is the first wave. It's essentially everyone trying to get women the right to vote. And then the second wave is happening in the 60s to 80s. And this is where things start to get a little kinky because sometimes the second wave kind of blurs into the third wave um, because there are still second wave feminists who still use the theory and the understanding of what the second wave feminism was all about today. And now there's a third wave happening today and that happened in like the 90s through now that is kind of we can see turning into a fourth wave but the fourth wave hasn't been like defined yet right yeah so it's again things are blurring with time but the second wave is largely focused on discrimination and usually the perception of women in general just everywhere what is the expectation of a woman in the workplace was the expectation of the woman in the home and why and how do we change how women are viewed in order to supplant the notion that they have to be lesser or weaker or just not necessarily made for certain aspects of work like heavy lifting and yeah. little stuff like that what are the expectations of women and how do we change them the third wave is again 90s and they basically came about as a response to second wave feminism because there were some initiatives some perceived failures really of the second wave feminism that people thought well this particular way of thinking hasn't quite addressed all of the issues or perhaps the perceptions they're trying to give women aren't actually helping some viewed the second wave feminism as essentialist which basically means they take what they perceive to be what it means to be a woman and laid it down to really simple terms and the third wave said well that's not very nuanced we need to make sure that every kind of woman is included. We don't want to focus on the bare essentials of what makes a woman a woman because that's not applicable to every woman. And you're just doing the whole treating a woman as what we need the bare essentials to be, which is exactly what the patriarchy did. And so we need to stop that and maybe try to have a more nuanced view of what women can be, what their potential is, and support women in a way that maybe we can look at a woman without seeing her as a middle-class white woman. And typically, this is something considered to be post-structuralist, which is a big fancy way of saying we had a structure of what made a woman a woman, and it's not useful, and therefore we need to break away from that structure and find something else. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty good overview of the different waves. Second wave is really interesting because, as you said, that's kind of like 50s to 70s-ish. Like, there's a lot of argument on when these waves start, when they end. Yes. And, I, you know, one good thing to remember about second wave feminism is that's coming kind of off the tails of World War II, where a lot of women yes. were able to be entering into the workforce for the first time because the men were off at war. And so then that mm -hmm. second wave feminism is really struggling with that difference between the public and private sector of, like, a lot of the men were like, 
coming back and it's like, hey, we want our jobs back. And then the women were like, well, no, we, we want to do this. <laughs> and so there's exactly. a lot of this kind of interplay there. And then the third wave is definitely kind of this idea of like realizing that there are multiple different ways that, you know, woman can be defined. We also see womanism coming in. We start seeing mm -hmm. intersectionality with race coming in to play yes. with third wave feminism. And then we also are now kind of at that point yet again where we're starting to argue. It's like, okay, well, now with the Me Too movement and everything like that, like it's starting to look like we're getting way more themes of empowerment coming into play. So is this actually starting to transition into a fourth wave feminist movement? So it's exactly. really kind of interesting to see how all these are coming in. So, but yeah, that that's definitely really interesting. And you mentioned post-structuralism. That can yes. also be applied to literature, of course, because these mm -hmm. waves can actually be seen throughout modernism postmodernism post postmodernism because literature yes. can't come up with very good like definitions for waves you know uh yeah. once we hit modernism it's just let's just keep adding post on the end but the same thing with my anthropological background can also be seen with the waves and archaeology mm -hmm. because we have first wave kind of relating about at the same time as culture history then we have second wave kind of happening with processualism and then we have mm -hmm. third wave coming in with post processualism which actually starts having feminism in the archaeological record being way more pronounced so these waves are actually very much tied to a lot of different theoretical backgrounds in literature in anthropology and i know in your art history background they're there too so it's really yes, interesting absolutely depictions of women have changed um, according to how women are viewed and perceived and interpreted. There are feminist pieces of art that you can look at and you can, according to the values of each wave, determine actually when that art was created. And so there are different ways to depict masculine and feminine things. And something that the second wave feminism typically does in art is try to redefine the masculine and the feminine. What can be masculine about an object and how can we make it feminine? It's a lot of symbolism and it's a lot of, in a way, it's a lot of critique of what makes something masculine, what makes something feminine, and why does it need to be any of that at all, which goes into the third wave of why does it have to be masculine or feminine? It's a cooking pot you know <laughs> right yeah so it's it's definitely true and there you have it where we're starting to see kind of the third wave kind of relate almost to postmodernism and even to postmodernism exactly. a little bit as well so you know yes. like that's that's something we see in literature as well where like we have postmodernism which is a little bit more on the abstract side but then post postmodernism is bringing it a little bit more home back to the traditional mm -hmm. way literature was written and being like all right well how do we deal with these themes and these questions now that we've already kind of started questioning them <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind yeah. of kind of interesting so one other thing that we need to talk about when it comes to theoretical is actually a little bit more on the entertainment media side which is actually how we're going to be getting into the rest of our discussion and our discussion about skylanders and the other thing that we really want to highlight is actually the bechdel test and this has started to get a little bit more thrown into pop culture recently but it's still i think mostly among academics so we're still going to just go ahead and describe it anyway so Nagamakenu, why don't you go ahead and tell us who created the Bechdel test and what it is? 
All right, so this Bechtel test was named after a cartoonist, Alison Bechtel, who wrote a comic strip called Dykes to Watch Out For in 1985. The idea was then created by Liz Wallace, and it was based off of her and the writings of Virginia Woolf. So when we look into what the Bechdel test actually is, it's really evaluating how feminist or how inclusive a piece of media can be of women or of there are other ways to use it. People use it to evaluate racism and homophobia in a work or in the more positive way, how pro-gay community or how pro-feminist a work can be. So the criteria for the piece of media is that there are at least two women involved who talk to each other, and it has to be about something other than a man. And so this is now applied to movies most commonly because that's what it was originally designed to evaluate, but it can be used to evaluate things like books and, of course, video games. So today we're going to take a little bit of a look into how the Bechtel test can help us understand Skylanders a little bit better. I did a deep dive into the interactions between characters throughout the Skylanders series, and not just the game series. I even took a look at the TV show Skylanders Academy as well, and I tried to see how much of this franchise actually passes the Bechdel test. And Ooh. I skimmed through every cutscene available in the Skylanders games with the intention of trying to find out which games pass the test based on are there two female characters that interact with each other discussing anything but a man? as Naga McKenna just detailed the criteria for this test to be. And I was surprised to find that only one game in the Skylanders series has two female characters interact with each other at all. Oh. And that would be Skylanders Trap Team. There is a point in the Rainfish Riviera where Callie and Mags do speak to each other. But yes. nowhere else in the series does this happen. In the first Skylanders game, there are only two female characters to begin with, and Persephone, one of them, only ever interacts with the Skylander. So technically, you could force an interaction between two female characters by playing a female Skylander, but I wouldn't qualify that as passing the test, because that is user choice and not design. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, I would agree. And this is how it proceeds throughout the rest of the series. Even in Swap Force, where there would be reasonably, naturally, there would be interaction between two female characters, between the Chiefess and Tessa, especially as Tessa is supposed to take the role of Chiefess herself, she's the successor, there should naturally be some interaction between the two of them. But there is none. Avril and Tessa, there is no interaction between the two of them either. In fact, any cutscene that Avril shows up in is literally only populated by Flynn or Flynn and Sharpfin. Tessa isn't even present for any of these cutscenes. And then Chaos's mom, when she recovers Chaos from the Skylanders, also kidnaps Tessa. And when it looks like there would be interaction between the two of them, it fades to black. 
Oh. So we get zero interaction between characters where there should naturally be interaction. And I have to wonder, how hard did they have to try to not have any female-on-female interaction in this series? Because it felt unnatural that there was none, especially when I went back and analyzed the fact that Tessa had literally just been kidnapped. And she turns to look at the woman who kidnapped her, and it fades to black. There's yeah. no interaction at all. There's no interaction at all. And then even after that, after the boss fight against Chaos's mom, and she's trapped in the mirror, Flynn and Tessa are still there. Chaos, his head shows up. They do an interaction thing with Chaos. And then Flynn turns around towards the mirror and says, Bye, scary lady. And that's it. Tessa's right next to him. The one who had been kidnapped by this woman. No interaction. Yeah, wow. it's, it's pretty bad. <laughs> That's, um... Like, it's it's more than bad. Like, the fact that they they have that whole sequence with the Chieftess and Tessa, where they're, like, walking down the stairs next to each other, and the Chieftess is talking about how Tessa's going to be the new Chieftess and doesn't even address Tessa. No, that's she's, a problem. She only addresses the people of Woodboro, but never Tessa herself. And it just, it feels unnatural to go back and to watch these cutscenes looking for interaction and realizing that there's none there when there naturally would have been. Yeah. And this proceeds throughout the entire series. There's the one moment in Trap Team where Callie and Mags interact with each other, and that's it. Nothing in Superchargers. In fact, in Superchargers, when Tessa shows up, Callie just kind of is absent from the rest of the cutscenes from there on out, until the final cutscene. Yeah, that's pretty blatant. Like, they, it, it almost felt like Vicarious Visions couldn't have more than one leading female at a time. It's like, once Tessa got introduced, Callie disappeared from the cutscenes. But then once Tessa goes back to Woodboro, like, Callie starts suddenly appearing again. Really weird. That's disjointed and really not great at all, storytelling-wise. That makes no sense. And then in Imaginators, it's the same. The NPCs are shoved off into the Academy and only seen once throughout the game. So the NPCs then become the previous Skylanders. So you have like Spyro, Eruptor, Gilgrunt, Cinder, Stealth Elf guiding you through the levels. But the only female-on-female interaction you find in Imaginators is in DLC, where Stealth Elf interacts with Master Cammy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, so technically, oh. Imaginators would also pass this test if you count the DLC, which is increasingly difficult to find. Yeah, that's true. So that's definitely a really strange thing. Although, at, at least we can say, though, that there is actually a pretty decent amount of stuff that passes the Bechdel test in Academy, though. Yes, yes. In Skylanders Academy, the TV series, there is a lot of interaction between Stealth Elf and Cassandra, between Stealth Elf and Ninjini. There's not a lot of female characters in the show, but there is plenty of interaction between them. And it feels, okay. for the most part, natural. Yeah. That's something. Yeah, there's like that whole empowerment episode between Stealth Elf and Ninjini called I Dream of Ninjini, where like Stealth Elf goes to Ninjini for training and they kind of help build each other up throughout the whole episode. And they have a whole arc there together where they're not talking about a guy. So that's actually a pretty good episode that manages to pass the Bechdel test. But yeah, okay. as you say, though, and this is a problem with Skylanders as a whole, and this will really pull us into the conversation that we want to have about Skylanders in this episode, is that Stealth Elf in the TV show is the only female lead 
like we have Spyro, we have Jetvac, we have Eruptor, but Stealth Elf is like the only female lead in, in Skylanders Academy. Like, yeah, we get Hex occasionally, we get Flashwing occasionally, we get Ninjini, but like for the most part, it's just Stealth Elf. And that can be reflected in the games as well, because in the games, the most percentage between male and female characters that we get is we get pretty much 75% male and 25% female in Superchargers. That's the ratio of characters that we get in the lineup. Meanwhile, for every other game, females tend to make up 20% or less of the roster of new characters that are introduced to Skylanders each year and that's a pretty big concern and that's not just something that we see in Skylanders that's not just something that we see in the video game industry that's actually something that we see in the media industry as well only about seven percent of women are directors granted that number is rising but that's incredibly low and mm -hmm. we also see that with characters as well like you know we often see really only between 20 and 30 percent of like a cast being you know female characters or even named female characters with speaking roles that like yeah the amount of female characters that we actually see as protagonists or with dialogue is actually really only around 25 percent just like skylanders and that's actually a problem ditto and i did some calculations before this podcast and we actually found out that the percentage of female smash characters is actually higher than the percentage of female characters in Skylanders. That's a problem when you're dealing with a roster of 339 different characters. If a roster of about 80 is able to have like a higher percentage of female characters in a roster of 339, that's a problem. It really is. It's highly problematic. That's drastic. Yeah. It's really drastic, and it makes you wonder, who made this decision? Who at Toys for Bob and Vicarious Visions was like, all right, let's actively go out of our way to make sure that this isn't 50-50. And we've touched on this before a little bit, when especially speaking on the lack of female representation in the games when it comes to Swap Force, in that every one of the new gimmick landers, the swappables, every last one of them is male-coded. There is yes. not one that could even be remotely taken as female. Correct. I took the liberty of examining, with my art historical background, the imagery associated with these Swap Force Skylanders, and all of them tend to have a very typical male figure. Typically, when designing a male character, designers will use a mesomorph body type. This is the norm for that because the mesomorph body type is considered the ideal for men. The mesomorph body type is typically characterized by broad shoulders and a narrow waist, creating what's known colloquially as the Dorito, like an upside down triangle of a body. And then the legs go from the bottom of the triangle. And that's what that looks like. And basically every single one of the Swap Force Skylanders follows that body type. The shoulders are broader than the waist, and none of them have really any 
feminine characteristics whatsoever as seen in media. All of them are very clearly male-coded. Yeah, and there's a reason why Nagama is bringing that up. And there's an interview with the presidents of Vicarious Visions that worked on Swap Force. Uh, Guha and Karthik Bala were actually going to be linking that in the description, so you can check out that interview. I recommend you pause this, go listen to that interview for the first, like, five-ish minutes of it and then come back to the podcast. But basically, the reason why this is being brought up is that there's basically this interview between them with Family Gamer TV, where Family Gamer TV is talking about how his daughter really likes Skylanders and how he was wondering if there were going to be more female Skylanders this year. And he also asked a question about the Swap Force. And basically their response was, oh, we tried to go with like a gender-neutral approach, so we made them all male. And, like, he tries to, like, the heads of Vicarious Visions continue to dig themselves into a hole by trying to claim that they're gender neutral by being like, oh, well, he's a he to me, so I'm using male pronouns there. And it's like, oh, no. <laughs> like, like it just keeps, it keeps, like, going into a hole where it's just, like, they keep digging themselves further into it. Where they, yeah. they keep trying to claim that these characters are, like, androgynous, but they keep describing them as male. And as you said, like, they are very much male-coded characters. And their, their other excuse for this is, like, oh, well, male characters perform just as fine with our female demographic, so it doesn't matter. That's basically another thing that they say in this interview. And it's like, okay, fine, I guess if you want to use that argument, go ahead. But, like, the female characters in Skylanders are also really great. I think some of the female characters are some of the best Skylanders. Like, we got Splat, we got Stormblade, you know, we have all these really fun, powerful female characters. So why can't you just make the argument on the other side of that? Why can't you say that there's more female characters than male characters? Because they also perform well with the demographic. I think that's really weird to me, because I think someone at Activision made the decision, and we don't know who it is, we're not trying to call anyone out for it, but someone very clearly made the decision at Activision to be like, okay, like, don't have as many female characters because they presume that women aren't going to be interested in playing an action-adventure game. And they think that if they had an even split of male and female characters, that that would suddenly, like, drop their sales, which is just simply not true. Like, women can be role models for men, men can be role models for women, and I don't see why, like, they feel the need to have less female characters because they think they're going to have a bigger male demographic when even those female characters are going to perform well with that male demographic. And you bring up a really great point, in my opinion, that women can be great role models for men as well. Because when, say, a five-year-old boy sees a woman doing amazing things, why shouldn't that little boy admire that woman? Exactly. Like, that there's no reason to only give your male demographic male figures to look up to. That's ridiculous. That's not a good enough reason, right. in my opinion. That's yeah. unbelievable. If women can look up to men in that way, because there are so many heroes out there, and I mean, if you look at the superhero fandom, a lot of them are guys. Am I not supposed to idolize Captain America just because he's a guy? That's really illogical and irrational. Exactly. Like, this kind of idea that they try to put on these characters in this interview is just like, 
futile. It really is, because they're trying to make this argument that, honestly, you could just make the other way. And, like, the thing is, is, like, if you're trying to argue that from one direction or the other direction, then I think that's yet again when all these gender stereotypes begin breaking down. Because it's like, who cares about the gender? Like, why can't someone just be a role model for being heroic? Or why can't a kid like a character because they just like their moveset? And it's almost as if, like, they're trying to imply in this interview that that's kind of not the case or that it can only be one-sided. And that's just, mm -hmm. that's not true. Now, meanwhile, like, also, like, talking about the swap force when it comes to, like, the male coding of the characters, again, not trying to call anyone out specifically, but, like, someone did the ban hammer on having female swap force Skylanders. And I think the reason for it is the fact that they felt like they couldn't have male and female body parts intermixing on these figures. And that's really freaking annoying because, yet again, who should care? And I think at the end of the day, they were trying to avoid making a statement on it by making them all male. I think they kind of felt like they could sweep it under the rug a bit by just making them all male. So, like, no one questions it. But they literally say in the interview, because they have interchangeable parts, we had to take a gender-neutral approach to it. Hence making them all male, which one isn't gender-neutral, and two, it's basically transphobia. They're trying to go out of their way to not make a statement on it, because they're trying to appease a different non-liberal demographic, but they're making a statement on it by trying to not make a statement on it. And that's something we talked about in the Gimmick Lander episode, but I really think it needs to be reiterated here, because, like, by not allowing you to just, like, have this gender fluidity between these characters, it's really annoying to me. It's kind of ridiculous that they felt like that would become such a massive issue, that someone at Activision was like, okay, make them all male. That's just not good. Because I would have really liked female Swap Force Skylanders, personally. And like, yeah. who cares? Who cares if Washbuckler got a skirt on one of the swaps? I don't care. Let's have some customization there, you know? It's just like, it, it's, it was them trying to not make a statement, but at the end of the day, like, it was them making a statement. And it doesn't, it mm -hmm. really doesn't make them look good, because it makes them look like they are not supporting, you know, <laughs> like, the LGBT side of things. And it's just, it's bad. Yeah, it also implies that male is the default, which is a whole other issue. Oh, yeah. Well, it, they definitely made male the default in the Skylanders franchise, didn't they? Because, like, if your franchise can only have about 20% of a female demographic, like, that just has so many bad implications. It really does. And, yeah. Like, I don't know why they just didn't feel like they could do it 50-50. Women take up 52% of the population anyway. <laughs> Like, they're more populating the Earth than men are right now. So, like, I yeah, don't... Yeah, and additionally to that, I mean, if you say your demographic is a certain way, I find it odd that no one has sought to say, but what if we made our demographic more open? And then we could sell more. Right. Yeah, that's another I thing. I feel like that business strategy would actually work if we appeal to people who are outside of our audience we could grow our audience 
Yeah, come on, capitalists. Let's basic economics for you. <laughs> like, I, I just... <laughs> <laughs> I don't see how that's a good business strategy. But that's true, though, right? Because they are strategically pinning themselves into a corner by saying, all right, well, men are going to be buying our games, so that means we need to make male characters because only guys play action-adventure games. Like, there's so many assumptions that they are making when it comes to their character lineup. Yeah, assumptions are never really good, ever. <laughs> yeah, we know what that phrase is. We won't say that because yeah, exactly. we try to keep this podcast roughly PG, but I you know what it is. I managed to say it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it is. You can say it to yourself. You know the phrase about assumptions. So, yes. yeah. Now, while Vicarious Visions slash Swap Force has issues when it comes to the Swap Force characters, Toys for Bob does at least a little bit better later on in the franchise. It would seem that they did do a little bit better, especially when it came down to Imaginators and the creator that was developed for the Creation Crystals. In that, when designing your own Skylander, they give you all these parts to use, and the creator doesn't break it down to male and female parts. You can use whatever you feel suits your Skylander at that point in time. You can create a male Skylander, you can create a female Skylander, you can create a Skylander using bits and pieces of both, you can create a furry Skylander, you can create an aquatic Skylander. The possibilities are limitless, and I feel like that's coming a long way from what they did with Swap Force, and probably the example they should have taken when designing the characters for the Swap Force. I totally agree. Yeah, when you look at that character creator and you open it up and, and you're able to give like a, you know, a character that has a mustache, like a dress, or you're able to pick from a wide variety of voices, some that are not gendered, some that are male, some that are female, like, you know, you, you can have like a robotic voice if you want. And as you said, you're able to create a furry character if you want. The fact that you are able to like also like affect the body size you're able to make them tall short like there's no like body shaming here really either like the fact that they actually managed to give you a wide variety of stuff to where you are able to create whoever you want in this game and basically have them like be however you want if you want to make a gender fluid character in Imaginators, with the parts they give you, you can do that. Plus, the great part about being able to change parts on the fly as you unlock new parts, and as you're able to, you know, just open up that menu, keep customizing your character as you go, that's also really great, because that means that that character can change as you unlock stuff, and it can change along with you in your own personal experience and journey with the game. And I think that's really a good thing. It's such a far cry from what they did with the Swap Force. Yeah, that's kind of the opposite of what they did with Swap Force. Yeah, <laughs> like it's kind of incredible. So yet again, yet again, we're praising Toys for Bob and their and their greatness. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, shocker. I mean, granted, there's still the issue with the lack of female characters in the game. Like when it comes to like Activision made female characters, there's still way less than there needs to be, even in the Imaginators roster. But the fact that you're just able to go create like a hundred different female characters if you want to, it's there. You can do it. So, you know, that's pretty good. And like, it's actually very, very representative of kind of whatever you want to do. And it's, it's actually 
crazy how how representative it is um it's just to the point where you're able to even go in and change all the colors of the character as well like you're able to change skin tone you're able to change hair color eye color you're able to change the color of the clothes like they really allow you to get deep into this if you want to and the fact that none of this was locked behind gender the fact that you know there aren't like male hairstyles or female hairstyles or anything like that it's just it's just there that's great and that that actually is very very inclusive and that's that's something that should be praised about skylanders while it has so many other issues when it comes to gender and when it comes to representation it does do a good job in imaginators yeah i kind of um regret not getting more into that uh on my previous episode with y'all because i don't think i talked about the imaginators crystals at all um at that point because I didn't get far enough in the game to use them and I didn't know what they looked like or what they were. (laughs) And then I've been watching some playthroughs of it so that I could get more into what Skylanders is. And I realized, oh, I missed a whole lot of opportunities when I was playing that game. I could have been anything I wanted to be, considering what had already been unlocked um, by people playing previously. I wish I had known what the crystals were and how to use them properly um, when I was playing them for the first time. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like that'd probably make a huge difference because if you don't see a character in Skylanders that represents you, you're able to make it. And I think that's really important. Like if you wanted to create a non-binary character in that creator, you could. And that's Mm -hmm. important. Um, That is huge. It's just unfortunate that it took them until the sixth game to actually make this a, a possibility. Yeah, I do Agreed. agree. I, I know that they probably went with the character creation aspect as like a last hurrah because they knew it would probably be the last game for a while. But like, I mean, come on, even without a character creator, you should be able to have like a wide variety of characters that are, you know, non-binary or gender fluid or any number of things, more female Skylanders. Like it is pretty sad that it did take them this long to get to this point. Uh, but it, it is good to see, but granted throughout the rest of the franchise, the female characters almost feel like a, almost feel like tokenism. <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, because of how little they are represented in some of these past games. And bringing up tokenism, we might as well kind of talk about this now in the industry as a whole. So tokenism is an interesting thing because it's the practice of making only a perfunctory or symbolic effort to do a particular thing by recruiting a small number of people from underrepresented groups in order to give the appearance of sexual or racial equality within a workforce. So here it's talking about workforce, but tokenism is often talked about when it comes to film and when it comes to media. And so basically what's kind of happening in tokenism is typically like writers or, you know, wh- whoever is looking at this piece of media internally is like, oh, you have a lot of straight white males in there. Why don't you throw in a couple people to make it look like it's a little bit more diverse? And here, that kind of does feel like that's what's happening with Skylanders in some cases, because like... Women, as we've already talked about with the stats from earlier, are already underrepresented in media when it comes to having speaking roles and being featured as main characters. And so here, that that kind of basically feels like that's the case. They're just like, oh, well, 
Like, you know, let's throw in a couple more female Skylanders so it doesn't look like it's all dominated by men. And it's like, that's also a problem in the industry as a whole. Like, we see that a lot of the times where we just see like a character thrown into a piece of media that is just like, oh, so it's a bunch of like white characters except for this one character. Or it's like, it's, or that's how we end up with like stereotypes like the gay best friend. You know, like yes. that that's a trope for a reason in media because they will just be thrown in to have like a gay character and that's that's it. And so that's kind of an issue. Yeah, it's for me, you can tend to see when one is a token character when A, they're the only one of that type and B, when that character of the type doesn't really have any development of their own. They do not move the plot forward. And they do not necessarily participate in the plot beyond maybe a few conversations and interactions that don't actually add anything. Possibly they're there for humor, but typically when a character is put into a story, it's because they are needed for the plot to move forward. Yeah. And therefore it's very easy to spot a token character um, because they don't do that. They don't necessarily participate in the world they exist in. Yeah, like it's definitely a problem. Like, you know, for instance, the gay best friend character, right? Like they're typically exactly. there. Like usually like at the beginning of the film, they're like there to give the main female lead almost entirely. Usually it's a female that has the gay best friend. Uh-huh. Like, they're usually there to give the, the main female lead some sort of advice about relationships or about life or something. And then you might see them once or twice again in the film, and that's pretty much it. Uh, yep. That's that's a, that's a token character, because they don't really get any kind of other representation or any other kind of plot that's fleshed out. But then again, like, the thing is, and this is kind of really the sad part, is, like, there's also benefits to token characters in that if they weren't in the film, there'd be no representation at all. So exactly, it's always better to have some sort of representation than literally none. And that's kind of disappointing. And the other really kind of negative thing with token characters is that like all of the representation is riding on that character. So yes. like, you know, if you have a gay character and they're the only gay character and then you kill that character, there goes all of your representation. And it's just, mm -hmm. it's bad because, you know, LGBT characters are a minority and, you know, like, like if you kill them, one, you're promoting the barrier gay stereotype, which we can also get into. And like, two, like you're, you're literally just taking away the representation that like tons of your audience just had. Like if you kill off your non-binary character, then your non-binary characters don't have anyone else like them on screen. And it's yes. just, it's not good. <laughs> Like, me personally, mm -hmm. one thing that I don't like in media is, like, I, I identify as pansexual. And the thing is, is whenever there's, like, a, you know, LGBT character, they're always typically trans, gay, or bisexual. Like, well, yep. very rarely are they actually bisexual. Like, you never actually, like, I, I can think of one, maybe two instances of a bisexual character. And when you have a coming out story, like, typically it's like, you know, a guy who has a girlfriend and then by the end of it, he realizes he's interested in this guy. And it's like, oh, never mind. All this time I didn't realize that I was into guys. And so then he drops the girlfriend and ends up with the guy. And then like suddenly he's just gay. I personally can't cite a time when it's like, 
oh, know what I've realized? Like, I'm actually into both guys and girls, and then he ends up deciding to stick with the girlfriend. Like, we've never, never seen that, really, that I can think of. And, like, that's something yeah. that needs to be represented more. Yeah, I mean, it's a problem, because we say that sexuality and gender is a spectrum but we don't see it in media at all really we see again opposing sides gay or straight trans or cis there's no middle ground necessarily between what characters can be and i think that's a huge missed opportunity because as we all know the world is not black and white it's usually very gray and the trouble with hitting gay versus straight is that that's not all there is and when we have that represented in media then you get people like me who never even heard the word bisexual until they were 16. And you have people like me who didn't realize there was an option to be non-binary at all until they were 21. That's a problem. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Like, you know, you might feel a certain way. Knowing that there's someone else out there that's like you that feels similarly goes a long way. <laughs> like, yes, it really it does. does. And, you know, this isn't just about, we are focusing on the queer community, LGBT plus issues, but this also goes for people of color. How often do we see a Native American on the screen? And what kind of Native American do we see on that screen? You right. Know? Yeah. Typically when Native Americans are on screen, like they're typically depicted as like the, the wise, ancient, spiritual kind of side of things. They're typically depicted along, like along the lines of, um, a little bit more, like, involved into their, like, specific background and their cultural heritage. And they're typically... Exactly. Right. Like, they're never depicted, like, you know, in, like, a different kind of light than that. They're always depicted as, like, very spiritual, very, like, faithful, and almost also kind of... Not not always, but sometimes they have, like, a grudge, you know? Like, like they're kind yeah. of depicted in that way. And, like, that's, that's not okay. Like... No, it's not. I, it's very flat it's not a good character yeah and you very rarely see a native american who is modern like who actually lives and exists in the world of 2021 you know where we have people who have cell phones and internet and actually use it like you can put a native american in a contemporary setting you can give a native american an office job <laughs> you know yeah. but we don't see that do we we see you have a Native American who is the park ranger. Right. Yeah, That's it's always literally or, the or you only... see them in like a we're encroaching on your land situation, you know? Like, exactly. Yeah. And that's the only conflict we see. And I mean, let's expand it to the Latinx community. How many Latina characters are the maids? Yeah. How many are the seductresses? You know, you have very stringent types of characters that you see based on what color their skin is and that's ridiculous yeah it really is like that so this is not just an lgbt problem like this is something that like as we've been able to very clearly show with skylanders is like something that's a problem with gender it's a problem with race like it's a problem with sexuality like this is something that is pretty like across the board like if you aren't a straight white male then you're going to be underrepresented in media 
Yeah, and that's just not fair. And it can change as proven with Imaginators. There are ways to make different characters that represent people who actually exist. Yeah. Beyond, you know, the straight white guy. <laughs> yeah, like pretty much. Yeah, and like, I mean, even then, you know, I think the way that men are often expected to act not just like in media but in society is also kind of bad and that's kind yes, of, sort of changing but you know like men are often kind of depicted as like they're supposed to be like unemotional or they're supposed to only be able to get angry like they're not able to cry they're not able to you know feel like any kind of emotion other than like i don't know anger like that's the only way they're able to like really express that um like that that's like yeah. the stereotype and i mean for me, this also shows why feminism is not just for women, it's for everyone. Because as much as women have been hurt by the expectations put on them, the flip side is also true. Men are hurt by the expectations that are put on them. And then you have people like me who are non-binary who have no idea where they fit because society didn't really account for people like me. Yeah, but like that's that's the thing is I do think that that showcases that feminism is for everyone because like it is this idea that like, you know, as someone that is male, I don't know what it's like to have to deal with the glass ceiling. I don't know what it's like to have to deal with discrimination. Like I, I recognize that I have privilege as a male and as someone that's white. But the thing is, is like I'm able to do research on that. I'm able to understand that as best as I can, but I don't have the lived experience of that. And so that's something that, you know, I think needs to get brought to light more. Like people need to realize that white privilege is a thing. People need to realize that male privilege which is a thing because I'm able to do something that as, as someone that you know identifies and presents as male that people that are female and you know non-binary or trans are not able to do like I have things yeah. a whole lot easier and it's important to recognize that but also at the same time like men still are pigeonholed like mm -hmm. men are still put into the stereotype of like if I'm in a room and there's like a guy that's trying to lift something that's really heavy and the whole room is filled with women and I'm the only guy in there, I'm going to be the one that is expected to help him lift that. Yep. <laughs> Even though I am yes, a weakling and I can't move anything very well, <laughs> like <laughs> I would be the one that's expected to lift that piece of furniture. And it's that that's a stereotype. Like that's it's like they look at me and it's like, oh, well, you're a guy, so you, you have to be strong. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> Like, the, the only yeah. sport that I did in, in high school was Quidditch. <laughs> yep, and then you have me, who played five sports throughout high school. Yeah. And no one would expect me to move anything because I am five foot nothing. Uh, so there so, is also that. Yeah. Like, so I would the be thing. the better option to help move the furniture, but no one would even consider me. Right. So that's the thing, is, like, there's a lot of stereotypes in play. And it's like, you know, if I started, like, crying while watching like a romance movie i would get strange looks from people but if yes, a girl did it they'd be like oh whatever it, you know like there's still that stereotype of like women are more emotional and it's like that's not true men are just expected to repress it yeah and for me it's kind of like uh the hormonal argument oh you're just hormonal uh no i got news for you you all have hormones yeah and it has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on it probably has something to do with the way you spoke to that person oh yeah and they felt hurt by it naturally because you said something hurtful and now you're seeing the results. <laughs> yep. So that's that's a problem and like we're we're seeing a lot of people luckily with this 
third, potentially fourth wave feminism starting to kind of be brought to light over their not okay actions. Like, for instance, especially at the time that this episode airs, it'll be like a year ago. But uh, J.K. Rowling has been revealed to be a trans-exclusionist radical feminist, or a TERF, as it's abbreviated. And, Mm -hmm. like that's bad because as someone that used to be a really big harry potter fan like now i'm having to grapple with that it's like how do i be a harry potter fan but also condemn jk rowling and i know that you are actually uh well known for doing harry potter fan fiction stuff and organizing fan fiction stuff for harry potter and what what exactly was your reaction to like jk rowling expressing these views For me, it was heartbreaking, obviously, because I do consider myself trans. I do not identify with the gender I was assigned at birth. And so when I heard about her beliefs and was educated on what that means, part of me wanted to give up the community I had built. Part of me wanted to throw away everything anyone had ever given me that was related to Harry Potter. But the fact is, um, in my studies, you talk about something called the death of the author. The death of the author is this theory that once something is created, it is now separated from the creator. It exists on its own by its own merits. Basically what this means is that anyone's interpretation of that media, be it a movie, a book, a piece of art, is therefore valid and is not really based on what the author intended for it to be because once that piece of media is out in the world, it becomes a part of that world and not necessarily connected to the person who created it. We do not need to know why the author wrote something the way they did. We have the words that are separate from that because now we have to look at that work with the same analytical eye we would use to look at anything else. The only real perspective we should consider when interpreting something is our own and our own biases. So when you have J.K. Rowling causing harm to a minority community, I can also say, well, Harry Potter is not just for her. It is not something that belongs to her anymore. It belongs to the world. Anything she makes is now a part of culture. It's now a part of what people consider to be fantasy genre, right? So for me, it was easier to stay in the fandom and not abandon it because I could recognize that I now have a certain power in saying, no, it doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to the people who love it. It belongs to the people who needed it growing up, the people like me. And I can now, when I write my fan fiction, just out of spite, I can say that uh, Ginny is trans. I can say that um, Luna is trans. And very often in my viewpoint when writing, these characters, both of them are trans. And I typically see characters as gay when they are not canonically gay. I adjust my perspective on characters to say that, no, these characters don't belong to you anymore. And this is how I see them. It is possible to have a character who is black that was not black in canon. I see Hermione Granger very much as a black woman. And I see Harry, actually, as half Indian, uh, as in from the country of India. But 
I see him as mixed race and brown. And, you know, that can be really powerful to reclaim the characters you loved in order to feel the same level of comfort you once did. And that's how I've handled that as a fan, as someone who wants to continue interacting with a piece of media without thinking it was poisonous. Yeah, and I can get that. Meanwhile, for me, the way that I've chosen to look at it is I feel like, especially when the author is alive, I really don't think that you can separate the art from the artist personally. Oftentimes, however that story was written, was written with that person's background. Like, that person's influence and experiences drove them to eventually create that specific piece of work. So for me... And you know what? You're absolutely right about that. Yeah. The influence of a mindset does affect how something is created. Right. That's an entirely valid point to take. Yeah, and we can see that with plenty of other like pieces of media too. But then sometimes it does feel like, especially in the case of Harry Potter, it does feel like that contradicts how that person feels. And like that that's kind of interesting. Like we can see that almost with Ender's Game as well. Like Ender's Game has that whole like thing with like having to grapple with destroying an entire civilization at the end of that. And yet mm-hmm. like it actually feels like a little bit more poignant and yet Orson Scott Card is incredibly homophobic. And so it's really kind of weird that there's this contrast of like, oh, we made a mistake. We should, you know, be more loving and more caring and And then he holds the beliefs that he does. So in some ways, yeah, it can almost feel completely opposite. But at the same time, a person wrote a particular work because they do have the beliefs. Like Ayn Rand uh, grew up in the Soviet Union. And in her work, she very much, very much shows that she is pro-rational egoism. And in fact, she pretty much created rational egoism. She's pro-capitalism. She's pro-individualism. She's pro all these ideals that America holds deal because she was struggling with and trying to escape from the ideals and the confinement of the Soviet Union. She really didn't like the experiences that she had growing up. And because of that, like that drastically influenced her work. So for me, when it comes to looking at Harry Potter, like... I agree. Like, I really appreciate the community. Like, I love connecting with people that have Harry Potter interests. You know, it's fun interacting with other people that are Harry Potter fans. And that is something that J.K. Rowling is never going to be able to take away is that community. But also at the same time, like when the new Fantastic Beast movie comes out, I'm not going to go see that because I don't want to show her support. I don't want to, you know, give her any money. All my Harry Potter stuff, I've put that in storage. Because if someone, you know, enters my car and sees, like, some sort of, like, time turner hanging from my rearview mirror, or if someone, you know, comes into my house and sees, like, a Harry Potter poster, I don't want their immediate reaction to be they're transphobic or they're supporting what jk rowling says so for me i've boxed up all my harry potter stuff because like i love interacting with the community but also at the same time it's a pretty hard thing because jk rowling and all the stuff that she said and done is not good like you know just a couple months after her statement she released a book about a cross-dressing serial killer like that's not okay and it's really bad and a lot of the stuff that she says in her essay are completely outdated by decades and it's Mm -hmm. like you know she holds this idea that people should go to the bathroom of the gender that they were assigned at birth 
and it's just it's really not good and so when i look at that like whenever i'm out in public i can't wear a harry potter t-shirt i don't want to have anything like that on my car because i don't want people thinking that like i support that but also at the same time it's pretty hard growing up as a harry potter fan you know wanting to still support and be with that community so everyone's going to interact with it differently but it's kind of a big thing Yeah. And you know what? You bring up a really good point because I am also not going to give further money to what JKR creates. I'm not going to buy her books. I'm not going to see movies with her name attached to it. I'm not because I believe that's important. And many people in the community feel the same way. However, my approach to the things I already have is that I have them that the money's already been spent what's done is done and these are things i associate with the people who gave them to me and events i participated in i have very strong memories attached to them so i personally have kept my um, harry potter memorabilia and clothes in fact i am actually wearing a harry potter shirt right now (laughs) because you know i already have them yeah in a way the damage has been done And this is something that we see not just with J.K. Rowling. We see this with multiple other people. I'm sure by the time this podcast airs, someone, like probably multiple other people, have come out as transphobic or doing sexist stuff in the workplace. Like at the time of this recording, Josh Whedon just basically got revealed by Charisma Carpenter and so many other people on the cast of Angel and Buffy the Vampire Slayer Mm -hmm. and Firefly as basically emotionally and very verbally abusive to them. And this is something that is really surprising coming from someone that wrote these feminist shows like Buffy Mm -hmm. and Angel. It's so weird that someone who would write something about empowerment is turning out to be a really not great person so i'm sure that by the time this airs there will be way more of an update on this but it's still really really bad and this is something that we see not just in media too but in like society stuff where if you're not like a white male pretty much like you're going to have a harder time when it comes to dealing with anything like the government and i know ditto has had like struggles with this when it comes to you know getting gender reassigned as well on like licenses and stuff yeah i definitely have experienced some of these struggles especially when it comes to the system of getting names and markers changed it's a whole lot of hurdles and hoops that you have to jump over and through just to be able to be yourself mm-hmm. yeah it's hard it sucks and it shouldn't be like that yeah very true yeah very true and it's just representation such a big thing and like we haven't even touched on mental health and how like negatively those with the different mental statuses are depicted in the media you know like we have like some examples like that like the book flowers for algernon which tries to shed some light on how mental health is kind of seen in like media and in society and it tries to really depict that but even still that's like one piece of media that i think kind of just does an okay job when really like it's definitely something that needs to have an even wider discussion as well and it's just a it's a whole big deal that like you know there's there's so many different facets of representation that it would be great to talk about but we don't really have time for (laughs) but like this isn't just like something that is gender related or sexuality related like this is something that is way bigger than just those like you know it's dealing with mental health it's talking about body shaming it's talking about like 
any number of things race like society is we're starting to get to the point where we're recognizing that all of this is an issue and that there needs to be better representation and we do Mm -hmm. see movies that have better representation doing amazingly well in the theaters and western culture like crazy rich asians did really well like that was a box office slam yes it was and a sequel is coming out in 2022 apparently oh well see there you go and like that's that's a good thing that just shows that people want diversity in their media (laughs) so it's absolutely yeah so we're getting to the point where it's getting recognized and people are realizing oh like maybe we shouldn't depict this this way or maybe we need to have more of this you know like that's the thing is like we do have a lot of biases in that like western culture loves binaries like we do it's either liberal or conservative it's you know male or female it's public sector either this or that and yeah it keeps going (laughs) there's really no consideration for any kind of medium yeah it's and it's it's astounding yeah it's like you're either an individual or you are a member of the community and i would argue that every person on the planet is both yeah and that's something that we kind of talk about a little bit in the capitalism episode is this idea that you are influenced by your culture and you also influence your culture like there's an exchange that happens there like yeah your culture can influence you but one person can also spark revolutionary change and so absolutely that's important to remember is that like there's not just a group collective and there's not just individuality like we rely on each other to continue to survive but we can also have our own thoughts our own opinions and our own unique different intersectionalities with our culture i definitely agree because people are made of intersections i am not only non-binary i am non-binary i am a friend i am a family member i am a sibling i am someone who loves harry potter i am someone who loves lord of the rings i am made up so many different pathways i am a jew i am someone who is small i am someone who is strong i am someone who is creative i am someone who writes i am someone who listens there are so many ways I am myself that I cannot list them all in this podcast. It's just not possible. And everyone is made of different intersections. We are not only one thing and we are not only ourselves. We are everyone we have ever met because those people change us. Oh, that was very poignant. And speaking of trans rights, it's time we transition on into the next segment, our legendary treasure hunt. this episode's legendary treasure hunt the goal was to find mystical lots with a price of $40 or less the rules are that you get 1 point for every mystical and then a further half a point for every $5 under the goal minus half a point for every shroom boom in the lot because he's absolutely terrible yes 
See, you're on your second episode as a guest, and you're learning how awful Shroom Boom is. <laughs> I mean, I did have to battle Shroom Boom, and I won without even trying, so... All right, Ditto and Inklander, what did y'all come up with? All right, so this week, I would just like to preface this by saying that this was extremely difficult. I don't think I saw any lot out there, anywhere, for any price, with more than one Mysticat in it. Yeah, like, it was pretty hard finding Agreed. this one. But we wanted to go with Mysticat because, like, fun fact, he is the only female-voiced male Skylander. And going back to the topic of reclaiming characters, like we were talking about in the last segment, we kind of view Mysticat as genderfluid or non-binary, and so that's why we decided to go with Mysticat for this segment of the Legendary Treasure Hunt. But oh my gosh, this challenge <laughs> was hard. <Right>. It was <laughs> hard! So my air quotes lot for this week is a singular mysticat new in box for the price of eight dollars and forty cents ditto's quote-unquote lot has one point for the mysticat included and then three additional points for being thirty dollars under the goal so that brings us a total of four points total very nice. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good lot, too, especially because it's new in box. Like, you don't really see too many new in box Skylanders nowadays. And so Mysticat new in box is actually pretty good, especially for that price as well. So, like, not not bad. Mm -hmm. That might be worthy of the extra special bonus point, I think, personally. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> I believe that decision is up to me, so we'll have to see how everyone else did. What do you got in Klander? All right, so my lot came from eBay as well. And, well, I say lot. <laughs> like, ditto, it is one <laughs> Mysticat, and one Mysticat only, and the price of the lot is $9.99. All right, that means you get one point for the Mysticat, and a further three points for being $30 under the price point. So you have earned yourself four points as well. All right, Good we're tied. Job. All right, but what about you? Well, I found an actual lot <laughs> on Mercari because I'm good at this. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> My lot includes a Mysticat, of course. It also includes a Kingpin and a Chopscotch, and they are billed as super clean, in case you all were wondering. The price on my lot is $32 with free shipping. Very nice. So if you're interested in those characters, Mercari has got your back. Okay, so I get one point for the Mysticat figure, and I get a further half a point because of one $5 under. So that's one and a half points, but I am going to give myself the bonus point because it's an actual lot instead of an individual figurine. Well, I guess that's fair. <laughs> that's definitely fair. <laughs> Not even the bonus point can help me win. It is still a tie between Ditto and Inklander. <laughs> Four points apiece. Awesome. Good game. Good game. Good game, everyone. This challenge was, well, a challenge. It really was, to the point where we weren't even able to find lots, except for Nagamai Kenu there, so... <laughs> I, I saw lots. I saw lots, but when an individual figure was going to point out higher, obviously I went with the higher points. That's true. I mean, same. Like I, that, was, I, I scoured the entire internet as best I could for 
any deal that had more than one Misty Cat in it, and I just could not find one. Yeah. Yeah, same. I couldn't find anything with more than one. Yeah, so in this case, if you do like Misty Cat, you might be slightly out of luck here. You might just have to pay the 10, 20 bucks for Misty Cat, but yeah, th this was definitely a pretty hard challenge. I like Mr. Cat, so I'm fairly disappointed. Yeah, Mr. Cat's cool. I mean, on the one hand, I already have a Mr. Cat, but I could pick up a second one for the alternate path for like ten bucks. So yeah, so it's not awful. That's, like it's not. That's awful. my takeaway from this legendary treasure hunt this week. Yeah, he's not Wildstorm, so <laughs> you know, like you, you should be able to find him a little bit easily. Now that we have bemoaned the difficulty of this challenge, it is time we moved on to a Dread Yacht Destinations. We are aboard the Dread Yacht. Normally, I'd say we're floating above the clouds or something like that, but I wouldn't know because I'm down in the galley. Jetvac has been complaining that somebody's stolen his lunch, so I've decided I'm going to share mine with him. Feeling a little snacky anyway. Inklander and Nagamikanu are up on deck with Flynn and Jetvac discussing our next destination, and well, it's it's got to be here somewhere. I had two whole subs in here. Someone stole my lunch. Alright, so I'm going to go up to deck and tell them we, we need to land at the Sky Fortress. Those vultures are getting out of hand stealing people's lunches. So in today's tour, we will be visiting the Sky Fortress from Skylanders Imaginators. Yay! Yes, yet another Imaginator level. Well, hey, it feels like we cover Imaginator levels a lot, but the good thing about that is this is my least favorite game, so that means it must be getting over with soon. <laughs> Uh, because, oh my gosh. The shade. I, I know. Like, hey, at least we're doing all the Imaginator levels, like, now. It's not been intentional. We've just been doing a lot of Imaginator levels. Uh, we pretty much mostly pick all the levels randomly anyway, but not not the point. I, I'm rambling. So, um, Sky Fortress. Yeah, this one is not a bad level. Like, I don't think it's, like, bad like some of the other levels in imaginators but it's it's fine like i'd say that it's almost on par with a typical skylanders level like it's got some pretty good platforming i really like what they do with the moving platforms in this one i actually think that's kind of fun and it feels kind of unique i really do like that and i also really like the different fight sequences and i also kind of like how we're in the second half of this level moving around the ship we're having to activate some stuff do some push block puzzles but also do some fights like i actually feel like there's a decent variety of stuff to do in this level it just i don't know for, for some reason it falls flat it might be the design like it just might be the art direction i feel is a little samey almost especially the interior part of the level just doesn't feel very striking or very exciting so because of that that might be the reason why i don't like this level but like honestly i think the gameplay is more or less solid i don't really like the crane part but overall like it's fine like it, it's not bad by any means but it, it's definitely not one of my favorite levels from imaginators either it's just fine so this level for me was a lot of fun i thought it was again interesting how you're meant to switch between the different types of characters and there's a good variety as well and there's for me i liked the consistency that outside uh fire was strong like when you're out on the ship and 
blowing stuff up. Uh, you're encouraged to use fire characters, so that was nice to see that you could come back to the fire ones and switch out for other tasks. And I like a little bit of consistency uh, when I play because then I know what I'm doing better. <laughs> I'm still learning the game. <laughs> like that's interesting. I've never really thought of it as like a like how precisely the elemental zones correlate with what's going on thematically in the level. Like I've always known that like life characters are strong with like a life gate or a life area, but I've never really thought like, oh yeah, like a place where you're having to like do explosions and things like that, that's going to be associated with fire. Like that makes sense, but I've never actually noticed when you're just playing through the general part of a level, how accurately the element swaps change and like work with like the, the theming and the plot. That's actually kind of cool. So I, I like that. I like that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. As I've played more, I like the way that works because it starts to make sense when I switch Skyliners um, because it didn't before. It felt random, but I appreciated saying, okay, here's the theme of where I am. So of course the Skylander is going to be more useful. And I basically went through the entire box of Skylanders and was like, okay, I'm going to pick one for every element and those are the Skylanders I'm going to use. And it was nice to have for this level, again, the fire one to come back to when I was outside doing stuff. Okay. Because it was, again, do this thing on the deck, go somewhere else and do something else and then come back do some more fighting, and then you have another task with another Skylander encouraged. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I really like that perspective on it. Yeah, I thought it was a good level. I I don't know. For me, it was a little long because it just seems to take forever to do all of the things. But I think that's also because I am easily overwhelmed by making choices. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Skylanders <laughs> does have a lot of choices. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It was a little easier because I had already gotten out each element of Skylander that I had planned for and said like, okay, this is my dark one. This is my tech one. This is my life one. This is my water one. And those are the things I'm going to use and the rest of the box is going to stay in the chair. <laughs> <laughs> now, for me, I find this level to be immensely fun. I really enjoy how platforming heavy it is. The one thing I really don't enjoy about this level is the Wrecking Ball, as Inklander said, that I wouldn't say the controls feel loose, but it's difficult to control, would be a more accurate statement. Yeah. And especially in the case of speedruns, it's just obnoxious is what it is. It feels more <laughs> like a chore than anything else. Yeah, because you're having to knock the crates off, you're having to knock the enemies off, it just, yeah, it, it really kind of slows things down, and as you say, the controls aren't awful, like, it's definitely doable, but, you know, especially in comparison to the grind rail challenges, where the controls for that are horrendous, that part's not bad, but it definitely does kind of have the pacing take a hit. Yes, it definitely does. That aside, the rest of this level is great. With the push block puzzles and with all the platforming, there's a lot of combat. This is a very combat heavy level and it's really just overall enjoyable. Then the Night Doomlander for the boss. That one, at least my first playthrough, kind of kept me on my toes because he has such a wide area he can hit. And at the same time, you're dodging a wrecking ball similar to the one that you were forced to use earlier in the level. And that can do a significant amount of damage as well. So it was a little more interesting than some of the other Doomlander fights. 
Although I can see where Inklander would be coming from on this one when he would generally say that it feels samey. Yeah, like it's not bad. Like, I, I don't think it's like a great level. But like, I think the coolest thing for me is the platforming on the like pivoting platforms. Yes. Like, I think that makes yes. this level really distinct. And that I think is cool. That's some pretty good platforming, I think, at its finest there. Like, I really enjoy those parts of this level. It, it comes back later in Abandoned Amusement Park. I'm not really fond of how it's used there. I think it's kind of just weird that they threw it in. But here, I really do like it. Like, it's kind of at the shipyard area anyway, so it almost seems like these platforms are being used to like move things around typically you're even able to see them spinning and moving in some places so that that actually was pretty cool i really like that but otherwise yeah i don't know it's just something about this level that makes it kind of feel okay i really do think that it's just kind of the theming like i just don't know if i really like the art style and design of this level personally but i i think that's kind of the main thing but yeah Otherwise, it has your push block puzzles, it has your fights, it has your Doomlander fight at the end, and I think that's all good. But yeah, the thing that I think is the most recognizable for me and the thing that I think is the most enjoyable is definitely those platforms. Yeah, the platforming definitely really stood out in this level, and it was fantastic. Yeah. Now, also, I do like Jetback as well. I do have to mention Jetback. <laughs> uh, he's fun. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. I like him. Yeah. I like I like the voice actor for him. He plays the mm -hmm. character when you're playing as a figure. He voices him in the game. And also he voices the character on the show, too. So he's one of the few oh, voice really? actors. Yeah, he's one of the few voice actors who's actually played all iterations of that character. And Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, and I really appreciate that they didn't try to go get like a big name voice actor or a big name actor to go play Jetback on the show. Like they actually kept Greg Ellis, which is nice. So uh, he does a good mm -hmm. job with it. I think he always does a very good job of making Jetvac have that kind of dry humor to him and I really appreciate that and also you know one thing that we didn't even talk about at all in the main segment is like ageism or ableism but here we have a character who has lost his wings and who is also a little bit older but he's not depicted as like not being able to do things like he's here he's a skylander he's heroic he's helping to lead us through this level and i really appreciate that about jetvac like i think that really adds a lot of personality to his characters like he is this guy who's going to get back up he's gonna fight you know like it's good like we have a older character depicted here who is like very strong and he's very much like a go-getter and i i really do appreciate that yeah, I really liked this character. Um, the voice is very distinct, which is why I really like that the same voice actor came and kept doing his voice. I think definitely getting someone else to do it would have been a mistake. And I I don't know, he has a comforting presence for me. Like, he's just so authoritative and he's like, you're going to do this now. You're going to do this. And now we are going to do this because that's how we're going to defeat all of the things. Yeah. And I was just like, yes, okay. I know exactly what I'm doing and I am capable of doing this because you are inspiring confidence. Yeah, he actually does have a very good voice. Like, I, like, I wouldn't be opposed to hearing, like, Jetvac do, like, books on tape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah, could you read me a bedtime story? <laughs> yeah. Like, he'd be very get at it like i do think he has sorry a what's a tape <laughs> oh i'm sorry i'm sorry i meant downloads that new fandangled thing <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding i i remember clearly what a tape set is uh, so do i yeah yeah downloads we're all I old i know yeah we we all grew up around the time that 
like cassettes were there, but also like DVDs and CDs were kind of slowly becoming a thing. But it's it, yeah. it was weird, honestly. Yeah, but, I, I remember when CDs started to become a thing. Yeah, yeah. I, my yeah. parents started transferring their entire cassette collection onto CDs. Like they would burn from the cassette to the CD and keep their their stuff. And I was just like, oh, this is a thing. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, like VHS. All of the cars had the cassette player, and you had to use the pencil to do the thing. And <sighs> yeah, uh, I wonder if we're gonna get was... an OK Boomer in the comments now. Hopefully not. <laughs> Well, none of us are boomers, so they're inaccurate. <laughs> I know. Uh, like, it, yeah. it won't prevent them it's from completely saying irrelevant. Anyway. But hey, that's ageism. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, like, I really do like his character. And he's he's just a lot of fun. Like, he, he would be very good yeah. at books on downloads or on <laughs> MP3 files, whatever you want to call it, on Spotify. <laughs> Audiobooks. Yeah, that, sure. There we go. Audiobooks, yes. Or a podcast. We got there eventually. Or a podcast. We're young and hip. Yeah, right. I'm not, I'm not, you know, unknowledgeable on these things. I know, we, I know. We got this. there before I had to replace my hip, so. Yeah. I, I, I know about the Fortnites and the Among Us. I'm on the Tumblr. I'm cool. <laughs> Yeah. Now that we've recovered some semblance of lunch from one of the fridges and given it to Jetvac so that he can satisfy his rumbly tummy, it's time to be off to our next destination, which in this case is the Archean Arena. Welcome everyone to the Archean Arena, where we pit Skylander against Skylander in a bout of hypothetical combat because Activision took away PvP and this is what we have to do now. So for this week, I've been trying to look for my portal, but it looks like the vultures have stolen it along with the sandwiches. So luckily though, Ditto's and Nagamai Kenu's portals are functioning, so it looks like the battle's just going to be between them. So, Nagamai Kenu, why don't you go ahead and start off detailing your Skylander? The Skylander I have chosen for this battle is Nightmare. She is a melee dark elemental. Nightmare has a health of 900, a critical hit of 62, an armor of 31, speed of 45, and luck of 26. So tell us a little bit about Nightmare's attacks. Nightmare's first attack is Traptanium Flamberge. This ability swings her Traptanium Flamberge sword. Her secondary ability is a Shadow Joust, which allows her to charge right through enemies. Her third attack is Battlehorn, and that stuns nearby enemies. Traptanium Flamberge deals 53 points of damage. Shadow Joust deals 21 points of damage. And the third attack, Battlehorn, deals 21 points of damage. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the upgrade paths for Nightmare? 
So the top path is called Shadow Summoner, which increases the max number of shadowy clones. And those explode and heal you. And then the Attack 3 destroys clones to power up attacks. The bottom path is the Flamberge Aficionado, which allows Attack 1 to gain combos, and Flamberge deals increased damage. Nice. Oh no. <laughs> so Nightmare is a pretty fun character. She is actually really cool. She was the first Dark Element character introduced, and she's a lot of fun. She's got a lot of cool moves. I really like her joust kind of abilities. They're really fun. Uh, and her lance is just such a really awesome Traptanium weapon. So let's go ahead and throw it on over to Ditto. But as Ditto's about to summon her character, one of the vultures tries to swoop down and grab it. Ditto's wrestling with the portal with the vulture, and the portal snaps in two yet again. So it looks like Ditto's portal, malfunctioning, is summoning forth Head Rush for our Kian Arena today. Oh, oh. no. <laughs> oh. Well. So sorry. That, yeah, that's that's a massive downgrade from the character I had chosen. Um, <laughs> okay. So, Head Rush is a melee earth elemental Skylander. Head Rush's health is 1,020, has a critical hit of 56, armor 33, speed of 55, and luck of 24. Head Rush's attack one is called Traptanium Horns, which allows her to head bash enemies, and if you hold the attack, she will charge ahead, full throttle. Her attack two is called Stomp. She stomps the ground, generating a shockwave that deals damage to enemies. Her attack three is Yodel, which allows her to Yodel, pulsing outwards to deal damage to all enemies in range. Traptanium Horns do 41 points of damage, Attack 2 Stomp deals 24 points of damage, and the Tertiary Attack Yodel deals 24 points of damage. For upgrade paths, Headrush's top path is known as Lungs of Steel, which allows for Attack 3 to deal increased damage and destroy the ground beneath her, which will cause enemies to slow down. And her bottom path is called Stomp Harder, and allows for attack 2 to gain increased damage, destroys the ground beneath her, and allows for turning during a charge to deal increased damage. Yeah, so here we have Nightmare versus Headrush, and Headrush is kind of notoriously known as being one of the worst trap masters, but nevertheless, let's see what exactly the strategy is going to be for these two champions this week. So the way I would try to play this is I would... Either path allows for the ground to be destroyed, so I would definitely focus on keeping the ground pretty well wrecked to slow down Nightmare, because that Flamberge does do a lot of damage rather quickly, and Headrush's attacks are fairly slow by comparison. But then that would allow me to go ahead and try to charge through Nightmare with that attack 1, because... Just doing the attack one doesn't combo, and it's rather slow, so I feel like using it to charge would be the better option, and it would allow me to potentially dodge attacks as well. Nagamai Kenu, what would your strategy be here? I am looking at numbers, and I'm seeing that Nightmare Flamberge does do a lot of damage, but Headrush's health is quite a bit higher, I think. So I think I'm going to focus on the 
shadow summoner path because that way when Headrush does do damage, I can also heal myself while trying to make sure my attacks land because it already does quite a bit of damage, so I'm not worried about taking the Flamberge aficionado necessarily. I think the strategy is stay up long enough for the damage to be done. Yeah, that makes sense. Nightmare also has a pretty decent critical hit too, which is a little yeah. bit higher than Head Rushes, but still should be able to help with that damage dealing as well. And while Nightmare doesn't really have the armor up, or really the speed up there is also just a tiny bit a little bit more of luck there too so if you do end up taking that top path you might be able to uh, manage to stay in a little bit longer to be able to take out that extra 100 points of health to head rush especially because the traptanium flamberge deals roughly 10 more points of damage compared to the traptanium horns granted though yeah the stomp and the yodel are pretty much about as on par with your attack two and three so this could kind of actually end up being a little close here depending on the strategies yeah. that both of you are employing in this case yeah. i feel like the fact that i have more experience as a portal master would come in quite handy here probably absolutely i think you could take me probably like honestly like while head rush is kind of getting a bad rep here like actually it Kind of looks like Headrush could deal with this pretty well by using those Traptanium Horns, doing the stomp there, doing kind of like a combination of the two. Might actually be able to take out Nightmare's health kind of quickly, even if Nightmare yeah. is kind of healing. Like, it could actually come down to be really incredibly close. It really could. Yeah, it really depends on who stays up longer. Yeah, pretty much. What attacks hit, what attacks don't. Yeah, it depends on those luck stats as well and how lucky mm -hmm. uh, you're going to be able to dodge attacks and things like that. So yeah, like this actually could be kind of close. So I'm not sure how I would even call this one. Yeah, like that's not on me this week. Yeah, I know. Like the thing is, is like, ooh, depending like this, this could be like a, you know, four out of 10 for head rush or nightmare or like you know like it could be like four to six or it could be five to five like this could be a tie like it really kind of looks like this could be an even matchup like if we're going with ditto's skilled portal mastery compared to nagami kenu who's just getting into skylanders a little bit more mm -hmm. like i don't know like i would call it for ditto but the thing is is like if these characters just stood there on the paths that you know you're gonna place them on and just started like mm -hmm. attacking each other i honestly couldn't tell you which one would win <laughs> like yeah so that's the thing is like I don't know. I, I might honestly have to call it a tie. Like, this is surprisingly close, frankly. Yeah, I think I think Headrush is getting a bad rep. I got to play a little bit of Trap Team. I liked using her. I thought she was fun. Um, so I I was kind of sad when I heard she's not really considered very good. Well, I mean, I guess here it's we go. It's primarily because her primary attack doesn't combo and it's not very quick. Yeah. That is the thing. Oh. So the damage can stack up, but it's just not as quick as other characters. Yeah. Wait, does that mean if I took the bottom path where I could combo the Flamberge, I'd have a better chance of winning due to that because I can combo and your character can't? That actually could be possible. I don't know how much of a damage increase that bottom path does. 
But all things considering, yeah, the Flamberge might be able to hit a little bit faster than those Traptanium Horns could. So, I mean, the swinging the Lance also isn't very fast, but maybe? Like, it, it's possible. Like, that might give Nightmare a little bit more of a, of a boost over Head Rush. But even then, I think it'd be like a 3 out of 5 matchup with Nightmare winning. Yeah, I think it'd be close. Wow. So this is actually kind of surprising. I'm actually surprised Head Rush is is doing this well so hey look at that i guess you know head rush isn't potentially as bad as we think that she is <laughs> so uh yeah, yeah so it's kind of i think she needs to be utilized correctly yeah so i think in this case i'm gonna call it a draw like this i think this could actually be really close so i think this week we're gonna have a tie in the rtn arena between head rush and nightmare Ooh. awesome good game well played ditto that brings us to the end of today's episode I'd like to offer a special thank you to our guest, Naga Maikanu, for joining us today. Aw, thank you for having me. It was so much fun to come back. It was so much fun to have you back. Yes, it was great having you back on, especially to talk about a really important topic. You'll find our website and our individual channels listed in the description, including Naga Maikanu's. Follow our Twitter at SLPortalcasters for regular updates about the podcast, and join our Discord server for Skylanders discussions. Thank you for listening, and in the next episode, we will be discussing the best and the worst NPCs in Skylanders. See you then. Bye! Bye. It's useful for speedruns. It saves you countless seconds, so... Well, I found an actual lot <laughs> on Mercari because I'm good at this. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> so if you're interested in those characters, Mercari has got your back. So what I'm hearing um... is you got a point and a half. <laughs> okay, so yes. <laughs>